Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, as Nanaimo comes the latest city to ban natural gas heating, what jurisdiction will follow next? Have we hit a tipping point? Plus, suburban anger grows. Doctors and healthcare practitioners south of the Fraser organize a weekend healthcare rally, arguing the burbs are dealing with a half a billion dollar funding deficit. We'll have the latest. And don't fly the friendly skies. What if an airline lost your pet? What's the appropriate compensation? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. First, let's focus on our top story. Now, as, as if you heard, many of you heard last week, Nanaimo became the latest uh, Canadian city to ban natural gas uh, in new construction. What it means for Nanaimo is that natural gas won't be allowed as a primary, a primary heating source in homes uh, and new buildings. Now, that motion passed in a 5-4 to four vote after what can be best described as a contentious debate. Now, the city essentially accelerates its adoption of BC's zero-carbon step code to 2024. That's six years ahead of the province's 2030 timeline. Now, Nanaimo Mayor Leonard Krogh, who didn't support the motion, joined us on Friday to discuss the vote. Take a listen. I'm not going to be cute about this. Once the decision of council is made, I'm the spokesperson for council, but I was one of the four who voted against the acceleration. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's important for North Americans, if you will, Canadians in particular, because we are probably, if not the highest, close to the highest per capita users of energy and consumption of everything in the world uh, because of the nature of our climate and our geography. Um, Having said that, uh, there there are limits on leadership. I was certainly satisfied with what the province had decided was reasonable. That was Nanaimo Mayor Leonard Krogh, and as he said, look, he didn't support the acceleration, but uh, the council decided to move forward, and he uh, does represent the city, so they are moving forward. Now, joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the banning of natural gas for heating is Jason Wolf. He's the Director of Energy Solutions for Fortis, BC. Uh, Mr. Wolf, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Good to be here. Uh, First and foremost, your reaction uh, to uh, Nanaimo's vote last week uh, and the direction that they're taking? Well, certainly we're disappointed. Uh, We're both a gas and electricity provider, and this decision will cut off the ability for Nanaimoites, residents and businesses of Nanaimo, to access low-carbon energy such as renewable gas, hydrogen in the future. But it also has an impact on affordability, and that's concerning right now. Mm-hmm. Do you worry that this is the tipping point and because other uh, uh, municipalities and districts have looked at this? Uh, Saanich, Victoria, I know a variety of um, communities in Metro Vancouver, and including the region itself, the Metro Vancouver Board has looked at this as well. Do you worry that this is a tipping point? Well, well, certainly we are worried. As I said, you know, we're bringing on low-carbon solutions. We're, we're committed to meeting the province's targets in 2030. And we really feel that consumers should have the ability to make that choice for themselves and have options. And that by using both the gas and electric systems, that's a better way to get there than to just pick one of those systems. Mm-hmm. Now, can you walk the audience through and myself through the, what renewable what you need what you mean by renewable gas? Because some of many of many people have said, look, they don't buy what Fortis is saying. Walk me through what this is. Sure, it's pretty new and it's pretty innovative, actually. Renewable natural gas comes from wastewater treatment facilities, farm waste, green curbside waste, like in Surrey landfills. And all those, uh, all those facilities emit methane already through the decomposition of matter. So it happens naturally. What we do is we actually capture all that, put it in our pipes, deliver it to customers, and that displaces conventional natural gas. And it actually has emissions about one-tenth of that of electricity. 
So when you move this gas, it you move it with traditional natural gas, do you not? Yes, absolutely, because it, makes, uh, it would be very difficult to have a separate pipe from every renewable gas facility at each home. Um, it mixes with our existing gas, and it displaces that conventional natural gas that would have been there. Uh, but what do you say to the argument? Someone said, look, the very fact that you have to do this, and I understand for practical reasons, for economic reasons that you have to do this, that that people don't buy the 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 name or the argument that this is renewable natural gas. Well, certainly as renewable, it's been certified. We monitor the province has uh, also agrees with us as they provided legislation for us to bring on renewable natural gas. And it's actually the same way the electric system works. When we bring on power, we bring it from everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can't guarantee what electron you're going to get from what source. Um, but overall, you know, we acknowledge in BC that our uh, electric system is about 97% clean. So this is the same process we're using on the gas side where it doesn't make sense to build a whole new system, mm-hmm. but over time we'll bring on this renewable gas and it'll displace all that conventional gas. Mm-hmm. What do you say to the argument at the end of the day, it, the conventional natural gas still does need to come down to zero. It is a fossil fuel. Yes, it burns cleaner than coal. All of those things, others have called it a transitional uh, fuel source, mm-hmm. whatever it may be. But at the end of the day, that we do have to get to a point, and if we are going to make the true transition, one could argue, well, that's in 10 years or 75 years, whatever it may be. But we do have to get away from traditional natural gas, inevitably. Well, we have to we have to meet the the emission targets we have and the, the 2030 targets, 2050 targets of the province and the the federal government has and many municipalities, and we're on track to meet those at Florida's BC. Um, but we also have to be mindful of the cost and how that works, and and to select only one energy provider, electricity instead of both electricity and gas. Mm-hmm. will only mean higher costs. We're, we'll get there faster using both. Mm-hmm. And just to confirm here, uh, you're hoping to supply all new residential customers with 100% renewable gas by 2030, uh, and the goal mm-hmm. is to move the entire system to renewable natural gas by 2050. I mean, how much of a challenge is that for your system, for your company, and just getting to that, even that target? Well, actually, the when you say 100% new, uh, renewable gas for all new customers, we have an application in front of the Utilities Commission right now. If approved, customers with new customers would start getting 100% renewable gas by late next year, so 2024. 2024, okay. 2024. Uh, so we are actually ahead of, of the target on new construction as well, um, and, and we can already meet that. We know we have enough renewable gas to do that. Now, this is Nanaimo, uh, one of the major cities here in British Columbia, but, you know, 55% of the population lives in Metro Vancouver. Uh, mm-hmm. And certainly the Metro Vancouver board has also talked about moving in this direction. Um, uh, Malcolm Brody he was on this show not too long ago talking about making that transition in a much faster way. Uh, do you see something like this occurring for the Metro Vancouver region relatively quickly in your mind? Do you think it's coming here as well? Uh, it, it certainly might be. You know, we're hopeful that uh, Metro Van sees renewable gas as a solution. In fact, there is a renewable gas facility that Metro Van owns, the Iona Waste uh, Treatment Facility. And that shows that, you know, it is a solution. We are bringing it on, and we think it can be a solution for all of uh, Metro Van as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but rather than excluding the, the gas system right now, we would encourage municipalities to work with us, support renewable gas, renewable natural gas, so that we can get that into the system and make it easier on consumers because they don't have to change out equipment to do renewable natural gas. They can keep the same equipment 
we can serve restaurants, buildings, you know, uh, manufacturing facilities, all with renewable gas without having to change out equipment. Mm-hmm. Mr. Wool, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Appreciate the time very much, Jeff. Thanks a lot. All right, well, let's revisit our top story uh, from uh, 3 o'clock. As many of you heard, um, last week, Nanaimo became the latest Canadian city to ban natural gas in new construction. So what it means for Nanaimo is that natural gas won't be allowed as a primary heating source in homes in new buildings. Now, there was a it was a there was a contentious debate in council in regards to that conversation. The motion passed 5-4. Leonard Krogh was on the show last week, um, and he talked about um, obviously the fact that uh, you know he was in support of accelerating this move towards banning natural gas. Uh, which would be six years ahead of the province's 2030 timeline, uh, but uh, the majority on council uh, felt it was the right way to go. Now, I spoke to Malcolm Brody a few weeks ago because um, the city of Richmond introduced a similar motion um, to the Metro Vancouver board uh, in regards to accelerating the move towards uh, getting rid of natural gas as a primary heating source. Uh, I do believe we have that comment from uh, Mr. Brody. Take a listen. I think it's the responsibility of all the parties in government, whether you're at the local, provincial, or federal level. At the Metro Vancouver level, uh, we have the Climate 2050 Energy Roadmap, and really what we're advocating here is to follow that roadmap but do it at a quicker pace. Uh, That is the Mayor of Richmond, Malcolm Brody, from a few weeks ago on this program. Now, we also had Jason Wolf join us uh, earlier today. He's Florida Species Director of Energy Solutions. Uh, He, of course, said that uh, they were disappointed uh, by the vote uh, in Nanaimo. Uh, And, of course, uh, by making this move so quickly away from natural gas, you know, um, it uh, certainly makes it difficult, especially in situations like emergencies that we may have. Uh, and they, of course, uh, say that Fortis BC is moving towards renewable natural gas. Um, they're hoping for all new residential customers, there'll be 100% renewable natural gas before 2030, with a goal of moving the whole system to renewable natural gas by 2050. Take a listen to his comments. Well, certainly we're disappointed. Uh, we're both a gas and electricity provider and this decision will cut off the ability for Nanaimoites, uh, uh, residents and businesses at Nanaimo, to access low-carbon energy such as renewable gas, hydrogen in the future. But it also has an impact on affordability, and that's concerning right now. That is Jason Wolf, Florida Species Director of Energy Solutions. Now, this is at this point a conversation uh, about primary heating sources for your home. But once these bans go uh, are implemented, one could imagine even in a residential neighborhood, if you're a developer, why would you put in a natural gas line at all, even if it is uh, for, let's say, a stove? So it's going to be a little tougher. Now, what impact could this have on the restaurant industry? And now one has said at this point, the restaurant industry is, is being impacted today and now. But the broader conversation of banning natural gas will have some impact. Joining me now uh, is Ian Tostenson, President and CEO of British Columbia's Restaurant and Food Services Association. Ian, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Jess. This is an important topic. <laughs> it is a very, it's yeah. a true existential challenge for a lot of a lot of folks, and I understand why. First of all, your thoughts on what you hear in Nanaimo, as I said, is for a primary um, uh, heating source, a primary energy source. Uh, but broadly speaking, mm-hmm. uh, when you see something like that and hear something like that, what goes through your mind? My biggest disappointment is the is a sort of lack of engagement. I mean, uh, you know, uh, me and Mr. Brody was talking about, you know, almost 
um, it, bringing these regulations in with impunity. Uh, no one's discussed this, and certainly, I mean, Nanaimo was more, is residential. You're absolutely right, but I think it begins the process of the slippery wedge, and no one has discussed this with us. So we, you know, we're looking at, um, you know, how, how do we sort of counter this in a responsible way? Because restaurants, you know, obviously, you know, environmental side of it is is, is important, very important to us. But is, there's a quotation in the states that said that. You know, uh, you know, banning natural gas in a restaurant eventually is like taking paint away from a painter and asking the painter to create a masterpiece. And, and that's how important it is. It's, it's, it's fast heat. It's sufficient heat. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it has a lot of ethnic uh, roots in it. And that's why Vancouver decided to, you know, say, okay, well, we can sort of c- can continue on with cooking natural gas but not heating natural gas. But all this... What this means is is that eventually the equation will be that the natural gas that restaurants use will get more expensive if we have less com- uh, residential users. And you're right, developers probably don't want to put in a gas line um, if it's going to be limited, you know, draw from because ovens don't draw as much as heaters. And so, therefore, those new commercial buildings too probably aren't going to be very viable uh, if all at all attractive to restaurants wanting to, to be developed and multi-use. So I think there's a solution to this, but the way we're doing it right now is becoming the politicians and the public. And, and that's not a good place to be. In my opinion, we need to, to have a, a, a plan together. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to listen to Fortis about renewable natural gas. Whenever the politicians hear that, they sort of roll their eyes and just go, no, no, it's got to be electricity, which we don't have enough of anyways. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we should be listening about the renewable natural gas and how do we as society move forward together to find solutions, not be so divisive. Uh, how would you fix it, though? And some would argue, look, the, the forest fires once again this summer, a reminder of where we're, we're headed in regards to climate change. Yep. You had the heat dome. You have a myriad of examples from around the world, from Europe to Australia to the United States uh, to right here in Canada as well. Does the restaurant industry not have an obligation to, to do its part? And that may mean, yeah. look, we have to, as a collectively, as a society... Make some sacrifices. Uh, yeah, no, we, we certainly do. And I, as I said earlier, it's so important to us. But we're doing a study right now, Jazz. And I'll, when we get the information, uh, the final information, I will I'll make sure you see it. Mm-hmm. But we are converting a restaurant on Main Street that's, a, you know, that's in a, a, a building owned by the city of Vancouver. And uh, it's a gas-driven restaurant, like most of them are. Mm-hmm. And we're doing a conversion. It's going to be quite expensive to do this study, by the way. Um, probably about $25,000 to study how would we theoretically uh, convert the gas restaurant to electricity. And what we're seeing right now is that the, the capital cost is, so this is one restaurant, and the capital cost to do that and all the rewiring and stuff, even if we could get enough electricity, which is even you know debatable in that building, mm-hmm. it, it's probably going to be seventy-five dollars to $100,000 at least to do it. And then you have a kitchen that's that's just not efficient. I mean, there's there there is new technologies coming in cooking. I I cooking get that, mm-hmm. but I guess my point is our responsibility has to match the reality of what's what's a, what's a, what's possible right now. And it, what we what we're creating is a whole bunch of uncertainty for thousands of businesses uh, that you know, they don't all phone this, but they phone, every day they get a phone call saying, 
really? We're not going to have natural gas. So what are my alternatives? I'll have to shut my restaurant down. This is not affordable. It's going to mm-hmm. be too expensive. And and that, to me, is, is not managing the process from a political point of view very effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any technology right now that can, that can provide that intense heat, that blue flame that is, uh, as you no. say, required by restaurants? Is there anything that you've seen so far? I think in, there's, there's a little bit of induction, I think, say they could do it. But the problem is, is that um, it's it's a scalability issue. So if you have gas uh, burners, in a, you, can, you know, you go to your favorite restaurant, you see all the gas burners going. Mm-hmm. They turn on fast, they shut down fast. Um, but a lot of electricity-driven cooking tops, cooktops, require those. And this is another issue that we, you know, if you say, well, great, we're going to use electricity. Most, those, most chefs will tell you, that oven, that stovetop has to be on all the time. You can't turn it off. I need instant heat. And so now you're going to heat up your kitchens and you're going to get work safe going like what's going on here. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole bunch of reactions to this. And, and, I, and I think we can get there without having this drastic, because it's fine. I mean, if we, if we ban, as I said, we ban natural gas in new buildings, but it's going to force the price up in restaurants and it makes it uneconomic. So I think we need a broader more uh, strategic conversation right now it's a little bit political it all sounds great you know let's get rid of you know natural gas but i I, no one's really charted the plan here and and i'm yet to hear someone say let's talk about renewable natural gas we're really quite keen about that we're working with fortis Mm -hmm. on the renewable natural gas thing which i think is really attractive which does you know, as you say, our responsibility, those type, types of moves, Jazz, will, um, you know, will align us more with with our long-term responsibilities and environment. Mm-hmm. Ian, thank you so much for your time. They really appreciate it. It's a really important issue. And do get back to us uh, once this uh, uh, this test at this restaurant is done. We'd love yeah. to see uh, what you guys learn from it. And that'll be around the end of September, Jazz, but we'll make sure you get it for sure. I think you'll find it fascinating. Appreciate it. Thank you. So, thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Now think for a moment, when's the last time you saw um, a group of doctors organizing a rally? I think the answer generally is uh, zero to to never. Uh, Well, a bunch of doctors are going to be participating in protests, um, which emphasize the escalating health care crisis south of the Fraser. Uh, The physicians, along with other health care practitioners, as I said, are organizing a rally uh, for this Saturday. Now, Dr. Randy Gill uh, is one of the driving forces behind that rally and basically he really wants everybody to know the inadequate funding the region receives compared to Vancouver. Uh, Dr. Gill is an emergency room physician at Surrey Memorial Hospital. He's also an assistant professor of emergency medicine and critical care at UBC. Dr. Gill, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Why the need for a rally uh, on September 9th? The need is uh, we want to galvanize our community, uh, bring the attention back to uh, the disparity that's happening, the discrepancy in funding. Uh, we were really left behind when it comes to uh, the services that we have south of the Fraser and what we have access to uh, for life-saving treatments. Because uh, that is the reason why we want to uh, bring the community together and bring the medical community and bring the, uh, the community voices uh, to the table uh, so the province can hear them loud and clear. Generally, uh, when you think rallies um, and demonstrations, you don't think doctors generally attending. It certainly takes a lot for doctors to get to this point where they're attending rallies and and I assume will be speaking at those rallies. Uh, What convinced you and for others uh, in your position to to come forward in this 
in sort of uh, this uh, high-profile manner? I think this is just uh, sheer frustration when it comes to healthcare that we're dealing with here uh, at Surrey and south of the Fraser. You know, we have, you know, from Surrey and south of the Fraser cannot treat the three leading causes of death. Uh, you know, we, we had a fever pitch um, type of media attention and, and outcry in the, earlier uh, this year, which was then led with some promises and uh, for, for a cath lab and IR for, um, from, from the ministry. Uh, and to be honest, it felt like it was a temporizing measure because those, those uh, things that were instituted or, or, or were promised were actually should have been promised 10 years ago. We're way behind when it comes to acute care beds. Uh, uh, taking care of our uh, sick uh, children, uh, elderly. And so the med- medical community is uh, just frustrated because, you know, we just don't have the bed capacity to, uh, when we're admitting patients to the hospital, we just don't have the bed capacity to take care of them uh, further. And there's such a discrepancy when you look at Vancouver to uh, Surrey and south of the Fraser. We don't, we're not advocating or, or saying uh, or complaining that uh, Vancouver is getting, uh, you know, uh, exponential amount more uh, funding and resources for uh, tertiary and specialized services but um, we're saying that we should have our you know the fair share of those services here too so our patients are going to do better so there's no delay to access to care. Mm -hmm. When you say there's a shortage of acute care beds I I was reading uh, just recently that on a per capita basis uh, that the lack of funding comes out to about $800 per citizen less than than Vancouver when you're talking south of the Fraser and that totals close to half a billion dollars in 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 uh, lower spending south of the Fraser compared to Vancouver absolutely and that's one of the things that we're, we you know we want the public to know that that you know uh, we, we we hope that you know with, with Fraser health and their execs they have that they all they, you know we have uh, you know that they have their um, you know um, heart in the right place they're advocating for us but the ministry really needs to step up here and provide the funding to uh, Fraser Health so that we can get those services across the board. Uh, the acute the care beds, is, it's shocking. There's 3,000 acute uh, care beds for Vancouver, and in, in Surrey we have only uh, 634. Uh, that's, that's a, you know, and even when we add the new hospital uh, that is proposed, 168 beds, we're still 300% less with the equivocal population. So that's you know, that, that, that makes it very difficult to, to manage patients. How did we get here in your mind? Look, we have an NDP government presently. Uh, prior to that, uh, prior to 2017, it was a BC Liberal government, BC United uh, government. Uh, I mean, this hasn't happened overnight. How did we get here in your mind? Yeah, this is just systemic and chronic underfunding of our region and just lack of proactive planning. They... they you know, we, we saw the growth. We know the growth that's happening in the lower mainland. We're seeing that it's happening in Surrey, Langley, and, and spreading out to Abbotsford. And the funding did not follow the growth. And that's, you know, that's also seen, you know, in the infrastructure for, for schools as well. And so the ministry uh, and the province really needs to take a hard look at and say, you know, why, why are we left behind? And, and maybe the, the patients or the uh, residents of, uh, are, are undereducated in the sense of undereducation. What is standard of care? And, and didn't advocate, and that's really what the median that we're trying to provide here, mm-hmm. so that uh, that the that the residents, uh, you know, are galvanized. That they're standing with us, and and, and we, uh, 
uh, you know, we're sending a message to the province that mm-hmm. you know, enough's enough. Now, uh, you know, we've t- spent a lot of our time talking about Surrey, but when you say South of the Fraser, you mean Surrey, Delta, Langley, Abbotsford, Chilliwack, those communities that are, that are uh, you know, fast, fast growing. Uh, in the early part of our conversation, you were talking about the region falling, South of the Fraser falling behind in regards to dealing with the three leading causes of death. Um, what, what are those three? I'm just curious. So stroke, heart attack, and trauma. Those are the three leading causes of death. And we, and so when it comes to critical intervention, there is no infrastructure or any specialized services in the region from, any, from the bridges all the way to Hope. And all of those patients need to be transferred to either Royal Columbian or VGH. And so you can see the burden of disease is actually is south of the Fraser. You know, there is a predominant South Asian community that has high um, heart, uh, heart attacks due to hypertension and diabetes. Mm-hmm. That leads to uh, poor outcomes. Now, whenever there's a delay in care, those patients are going to have poor outcomes. And maybe that was okay, you know, 15, 20 years ago when specialized services may not have been needed because the population wasn't, uh, you know, there wasn't much density in South of the Fraser. But now we're equivocal and we'll eclipse Vancouver. I mean, we're having at least 1,200 res- new residents coming in per month. And it's it's unsustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've talked about this before in another context. But when you say that, look, the the, the systemic problem uh, that we haven't prepared for this growth, one would argue is also a commentary on the political class in Surrey, uh, in Langley, Abbotsford, uh, whether it be at the provincial MLA level, at the municipal level. Uh, healthcare is a provincial issue, but the region itself hasn't advocated well, has it, in regards to healthcare. Because uh, these things, as you say, should have been, you know, you should have started addressing these things probably 10 or 15 years ago at the latest. And now we are stuck with this issue. And people like you are the ones that are going to have to organize this rally and be participating in this rally to really sort of raise the voice of a, of an incredibly challenging situation. Yeah, and we've, we've had closed-door meetings. I, you know, we, we know how to try to work diplomatically. We've had closed-door meetings with MLAs, uh, local leaders. Uh, and you know, there's no action, um, you know, and if you look at, you know, I know, you know, I was a part of that news conference on, uh, or the, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, on May 19th when Surrey Board of Trade had Adrian Dix, mm-hmm. and there was hard questions for him for, for uh, from, um, you know, our chief of cardiology, uh, Corny Young, and, and other uh, residents of Surrey, and there was not even a mention of uh, cath lab or a, a thought. It was just about championing the new hospital. And so, you know, and, you know, and then there was a, you know, a 180 after there was more attention and more pressure. And, and we can't continue to do reactionary medicine. We have to have take a proactive approach. And that proactive approach needs to start now. So we do need a health service plan that looks at, you know, what are we going to do for, the, for now and the future? So, and having an announcement on June 7th, listen, I love the fact that, that uh, Cath Lab has promised and we will hold the, uh, the, the ministry uh, accountable and, uh, and, and make sure that they deliver on time. Um, but the, you know, and that, that will change the, the culture at Surrey Memorial and give access. But that's a subset of patients. But we're also talking about, we're bursting at the seams in, in pediatrics, in, 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 in the maternity wards. We don't have a capacity to take care of sick, very critical ill children. They all need to be transferred. And so, so that requires a, a pretty significant overhaul, and that's what we're proposing—that a, you know, a second tower that was actually 
already in the works. I was in the plans. The, the parking, the tunnels, all that stuff is already done with the existing structure now to be tied into the new structure. And that's one of the solutions that we're proposing and have been proposing. So, so having reactive um, you know, solutions is only temporizing. And, we're all, and, and it's just this, it, this issue is just going to perpetuate onto the next generation and onto. And, and we need to, that's why we're taking this call to action. Uh, you know, listen, we're not activists. We don't know how to run rallies. We're trying our best to get, uh, get people together. Uh, and really get the community behind this, uh, because it's really for them. Dr. Gill, thank you so much for your time, and the rally is on September 9th at 2 p.m. at the Surrey City Hall Civic Plaza. Dr. Gill, thanks for your time. You're welcome. Here's a question for you. What if an airline lost your pet? What's the appropriate compensation? Now, um, recently, a woman named uh, Paula Rodriguez was catching a flight to the Dominican Republic with Delta Airlines. She had a a visa issue, uh, got the wrong tourist visa. Uh, She did arrive um, at the uh, airport uh, with her six-year-old Chihuahua mix, uh, Maya. Um, Now, the Dominican Republic native was separated from her dog after problems with her tourist visa, as I said. Uh, the dog spent the night at an airport, uh, at the airport, uh, as Ms. Um, uh, Rodriguez did, did as well. She stayed at, uh, at the airport as well. Now, Ms. Maya, the dog, was supposed to stay at a Delta pet facility, an airline agent told um, Washington Post recently. Uh, but what happened was that was the last time Ms. Rodriguez saw her dog. Uh, two days after returning home, uh, a Delta agent called uh, Ms. Rodriguez and said Maya uh, broke her carrier in the middle of an active runway on her way to the pet facility uh, the night of August 18th when this occurred and res- escaped the restricted airport area. To this, uh, to this day, they have not been able f- to find the dog. Now, Ms. Rodriguez says that Delta called and said the compensation for the loss of her dog uh, is $1,800, which got me wondering, uh, what is the appropriate compensation for something like that? And I thought the perfect, perfect person to speak to uh, would be Rebecca Breder, who, of course, is an animal rights lawyer. Rebecca, thank you for joining us. Hi, good afternoon. Thanks good, for having me. Good afternoon. I, I wanted to explain this story. So here's somebody mm-hmm. who was expecting to go to the Dominican Republic, had some uh, yeah. visa issues, and then uh, the dog somehow became loose, is lost at the Delta Pet facility there, and $1,800 was the compensation, or that's what's being offered. Your thoughts on this, uh, would this be enough? Yeah, it's such a sad story, and it really pains me. And I've, I've had a couple of cases now where, and, and recently over the last couple to a few years, I would say, mm-hmm. um, actually pre-COVID and then after COVID, where, where a couple of different airlines not only lost their pet, but the pet unfortunately died while in cargo, which is one of the reasons why until the day comes when we could travel with our pets in the cabin, I strongly, strongly recommend people to not take their pets with them. And unless there are, some airlines do allow pets to travel if they're up to a certain weight and height mm-hmm. in the cabin with them. But, but in any event, um, the appropriate amount, I guess it's what is the, it's a two-part question. What's the appropriate amount and what is likely to be awarded in court for something like this if it even gets to the court stage? $1,800, not enough. Definitely not. not. not I mean, uh, But no. would the court say it's enough, do you think? 
Realistically, I would say it depends on the judge. Um, If you get a judge that looks at these things from a particular lens, from a purely black and white type of lens where animals are considered property, because we know that's how they're still considered, sadly, then maybe a judge would would say $1,800. And and actually, let me just put that in context, too. From what I understand, the reason why this particular airline is offering $1,800 is because under their own baggage liability policy, the maximum amount that someone could get for lost baggage, not pets, but lost baggage, is about $3,500 or something like that. It was just short of $4,000. So I think they were offering an amount that they thought was reasonable or is reasonable for lost, quote-unquote, baggage. So that's why the 18, that's where the $1,800 comes in. It's kind of a halfway point for mm-hmm. what the maximum amount is. But here in Canada, so airlines have similar policies. They have baggage liability policies. Um, there's, there's also people's insurance, the most amount that they could recover there. But really what I wanted to say is that it, there will come a time, and I think sooner rather than later, mm-hmm. where courts are going to award more than just what the animal is worth on paper in terms of property. And I say that because I see that in my own cases where courts are really grappling with this idea, and I'm talking mainly about domestic animals, yes. where, yes, on the one hand, they're property, but on the other hand, they're people's family member, and and best interests are considered and things like that. So the law is, the law is very slow to evolve with societal expectations and norms, but I think if, if a judge, if you get a judge that is more progressive, you would get something more than 1800 Now, you're not going to, I don't think it's realistic to expect anything more than like 20000 or 30000 or our small claims limit here in BC is 35000 So I don't think you could expect to get something more than that at this stage. But I think depending on the facts, depending on uh, on the situation uh, and the, the person's attachment to the dog or, or the pet, I think there's a reasonable chance that the person could get significantly more than $1,800. Now, when people get a lawyer for something like this, at at least in my cases, they do not (laughs) retain me just for the money. They do it out of principle. And I think that's one of the reasons why I say time will come, and I think sooner rather than later, when people have had enough that they don't want their companion animal being treated like a piece of baggage anymore, and they will take it further. They will not accept the $1,800 in terms of settlement. And if they're willing to fight for it, both emotionally and financially, and you get the right judge, then I think the person may be awarded more than that, and the law is going to move forward that way. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I think Delta did also fly um, uh, Paula Rodriguez's mother uh, to Atlanta to help search for the missing pet, and even brought some of Rodriguez's mm-hmm. clothes to plant a familiar scent. Uh, but so far, uh, nothing at this at this particular point. But you raise a very interesting point uh, at, at the beginning of our conversation, which is you probably shouldn't bring your pet with you at all because they are, at this point, treated as baggage, as you say. Yeah, they really are. They really, really are. And it just, I, I understand, and it's not to shame anyone who does it. It's not to, to tell this particular woman you should should have, would have, you know, hindsight is always easier said than done. But if you do have a choice, if you do have the option and you don't really have to put your beloved dog or cat in cargo, please don't. And the reason why I say that is because these types of 
scenarios happen way more often than we would like to believe. And sadly, there are no laws governing how animals are to be treated in cargo. There are guidelines and there are policies, but there aren't any particular laws that, that guide airlines how to do how to treat animals in cargo. So it really often comes down to the policies that airlines have, the communication that happens between the person loading the belly of the plane with cargo and the pilot. I mean, I've seen in in my own cases where there was likely a miscommunication between the person loading mm-hmm. the pet in the cargo area and the pilot, and they didn't realize that there was a live animal in the cargo area, so there wasn't enough oxygen. The air pressure wasn't good enough for the animal. It was pressure, the, the compartment was... It, put in a way um, for cargo and not for a live animal. So there's so many different factors at play. Mm-hmm. But until until our laws are actually come into, come into or created to protect animals in airlines, then I, I really, really strongly encourage people to just not take your companion animal in cargo. Mm-hmm. Just don't do it. Uh, I want to change the subject a little bit. Um, in uh, in Tawasan, they have a Facebook page called Tawasan Loop, which just is mm-hmm. local folks uh, uh, helping each other with, uh, you know, your your favorite ice cream shop down to I need a carpenter, who would you recommend? Uh, so it's got a significant amount of followers. But I saw a posting there just recently from uh, one of their contributors named Emma, and it was just uh, the woman in this case had a three-month-old puppy, and they were out walking. She and her husband were out walking. Um, at a local park called Windskill Park, which is very popular in Tawasan. And Mm -hmm. uh, at this point, the the dog, when they got home, um, you know, started acting acting very differently. And when they look back along the timeline, they realize as they're out in the park, um, the the, the dog, she tested positive for having inhaled or consumed fentanyl and other opioids. Uh, Now, this is a very popular park, uh, not only for dog lovers, but for parents. Kids are out uh, in different parts of the park playing, you know, um, baseball, and there's a swimming pool nearby as well. I'm just uh, wondering, in your practice, are you hearing about more of these types of things happening, uh, whether it's inhaling opioids or fentanyl or even cannabis or edibles? Are you hearing more of this? Cannabis? Yes, Yes, yes. I hear, I haven't, in in my own practice, I haven't seen fentanyl yet, but Mm -hmm. that doesn't surprise me. But it's crazy and it's so scary. But um, yeah, I hear quite a bit about cannabis, but sadly, there's nothing much I can do about that. Mm -hmm. It's potentially a criminal matter, but doubtfully, first of all, good luck finding the person. And and it's not even, I mean, I say potentially criminal, but highly unlikely, because especially when it comes to cannabis, it's legal. Mm -hmm. So, People are allowed, unless there's a bylaw not allowed smoking in parks, but people are allowed consuming cannabis products. But what I suggest and highly, highly recommend to people is that if you see your dog sniffing around a park bench or sniffing a lot more intensely than they normally do, just just pull the leash and uh, closer to you. Mm-hmm. It's really sad because there's not much that you could do about it. I, I commend this person for calling it out on Facebook and just kind of letting people know, hey, this is what happened to my dog, be careful. But from kind of a legal point of view, there's not much you could do because it's almost impossible to find these people. And then it's not like these people, even if you find the person, it's not like 
this person intentionally dropped this product or leftovers of whatever it is, cannabis or fentanyl, to intentionally harm your, your animal. You know, but, but I think good on her that she actually took the time to write that Facebook posting to make people aware of what happened to her dog and to alert people. Yeah, and I, I do want to reiterate the the puppy ended up making it through the night and is on the road to recovery, which is fabulous news. Which is yay, uh, yeah, exactly. Good. Glad to hear. <laughs> yeah. Rebecca, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.